Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited to bring you the latest episode of our digital asset series, which is an area we've been focusing on, especially over the last uh, six months as uh, mainstream interest in the asset class has grown. Uh, and our guest today is Vijay Boyapati, who's the author of what I think is one of the uh, most insightful pieces on the bullish case for Bitcoin is the name of the essay that he wrote. And it's something that I share uh, with members of my family and people that are just learning about the space. There's complexity to the uh, intellectual arguments that he makes about the value, value of Bitcoin, but it's also very accessible uh, for the average person. So I would, I would highly recommend you read that bullish case for Bitcoin. But uh, VJ, to go more into his background, was born and raised in Australia and moved to the United States through a PhD in computer science. He never started that PhD and he took a job offer at a little firm uh, called Google. And after leaving the much bigger Google in 2007, Vijay spent a year campaigning in the 2008 presidential election, helping to raise millions of dollars for Ron Paul. Uh, after becoming disillusioned by politics, Vijay decided to continue to seek change in the world through technology. He discovered Bitcoin in 2011 and he quickly went deep down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. With a background in Austrian economics, he spent years thinking about the economic framework within which Bitcoin's value proposition could be understood. His thinking on the economics of Bitcoin uh, culminated in an article, as I mentioned before, called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which is one of the most read articles on Bitcoin after Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of Bitcoin, his original white paper. And Vijay's essay has been translated into 20 languages, and it's often cited as the most useful resource to give newcomers who are attempting to understand Bitcoin. Hosting today's talk is Skybridge Capital, President and Chief Operating Officer, Brett Messing, who has led a lot of our uh, digital asset and Bitcoin research here uh, at Skybridge. And we're very excited to be more involved in the space and, and uh, thankful to Brett for helping to lead that charge. But with no further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Brett uh, to conduct the interview. Thanks, John, and uh, welcome, VJ. And, uh, you know, I am a fanboy because I'm a geek and because it's a pandemic. I think I've read every serious piece that's been written on Bitcoin, and I think yours is the best. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited that you're here. So Thanks, Brett. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, as I was saying before we started, I'm, I'm really excited that you guys have gotten into Bitcoin. It's always exciting for me to see brilliant, successful people have that light bulb go off in their head and, and understand Bitcoin and then get active and start uh, building around, uh, you know, the community, building technology or, you know, launching funds. So I'm really excited to see what you guys are doing as well. Well, that's kind of you to say, you know, we, we, we're up to about $500 million in Bitcoin. And as is often the case, it, it doesn't feel like enough. And if we had anything that was like this amount, a year or two years ago, everyone would have fired us. And so why don't we use that as a launching pad, which is, as we were discussing, it feels like Bitcoin is um, at an inflection point. And so if I can give you a framework, which is, you know, your, your piece, your bullish take, sort of combined with where we are, sort of, you know, I would just look, you know, I say question. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we were talking about this feeling that a lot of people have when they come to Bitcoin is that I've missed out and all of the, the gains are in the past and not in the future. And I, I want to sort of break it to everyone who comes to, to Bitcoin. Everyone feels that way. No matter what price you buy Bitcoin at, you feel like you got in late. And that's true of me. It's it's true of everyone, whether it be $10 or $100, 1000 10000 whatever it is, you feel late because you've seen people you know before you get in at earlier prices. Uh, I would just say, I'll give you a story from um, you know my earlier career when I was at Google before it IPO'd. Uh, Google IPO'd and there were a lot of analysts who said, this is crazy. This company is worth more than Ford Motors. That is insane. This is way overvalued. Um, this, is, this isn't going to last. It's going to crash. Uh, but really, Bitcoin was at the beginning of its story. And it was a long story and you know, 30x, probably 30x higher than it was at IPO. I feel the same way about Bitcoin right now. Uh, especially because if you look at the addressable market for Bitcoin, it's gigantic. It is the largest market on earth by far. The market for storing wealth, storing savings is a $100 trillion market at least. Uh, and Bitcoin has taken 1% of that market. So there is, there's a lot more addressable market to take before Bitcoin reaches saturation. Um, how much of that market will it take in the next decade? I don't know, but I think it has a lot further to go. When you when you look at the events that have happened in the last, I don't know, six, eight months, right? From PayPal making it available to people and they're going to be rolling that out along around the globe to the Tesla purchase um, to, you know, BNY Mellon getting into the, the, the Bitcoin business to um, BlackRock. Which do you think is the most significant in terms of, you know, the adoption curve, if you will. I mean, I think they're all significant in their own way. They all add social proof. They all add credibility to the average investor who's looking at Bitcoin and thinking, well, I, I'm not, I don't know if I trust this thing. Where's Who controls it? What's, what's the authority that's backing this thing? Uh, I think each is a touch point that, a uh, psychological touch point that everyone uh, sees and it increases their belief that there's something to this. And for some people, they only need one or two touch points to sort of get on board and say, yeah, I want to put some savings in this. For some people, it's 10 or 20. And it, and it really depends on whether they trust these institutions or other people that they're seeing getting in. And, you know, Elon Musk, I think is he's a big one for sure. He has 50 million <laughs> followers on Twitter and he has one of the most iconic companies around. And to see that company allocate a meaningful amount of its uh, treasury to Bitcoin is a big signal. Um, so I guess if I was to put my finger on one, I'd say Tesla is a, is a big one. Uh, well, I guess in terms of the price move, that would that would sort of validate that, right? That was, I think, one of the, I think the largest one-day move, right, in Bitcoin that we've had, um, certainly in, in 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 dollars. I'm not sure on a percentage basis, but um, the market certainly re reacted to that. Um, how do you think about Bitcoin from a valuation perspective, right, in terms of being too high or too low, right? There's a, there's a couple different models out there, right? There's the stock to flow, which just to remind people, that's where, you know, you look at the amount of existing Bitcoin relative to the amount of newly produced Bitcoin and you compare it to other assets. 
There's Metcalf's law, right? There's sort of the networking effect. As more people join the Bitcoin network and Bitcoin itself become more valuable. There's using gold as a proxy, right? As a percentage of gold's overall market. How do you think about those or, or, or do you in, when you think about valuing Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, I think stock to flow is a really interesting model. I am still not entirely sure about it. Certainly being very predictive and that's very, it's, it's interesting just to observe how predictive it has been. The way I think about it is I see that there are four, largely four valuation models that people have used for Bitcoin over time. In my observation, following this market for the last decade, the first is that, uh, and, and I want to assign a target price to each of these valuation models so you can kind of ballpark, think about where Bitcoin should be if you believe each of these models. The first one is that Bitcoin is basically the tulip mania. It's a huge bubble. It's completely irrational. Bitcoin has no comparative advantage to anything else. Why does it exist? And if you believe that, then the long-term target price for Bitcoin is obviously zero. The second model is that, uh, and this is the model I think people held for quite a long time until the last couple of years, is that Bitcoin, it's an interesting, interesting technology and there's something to it but it has a limited addressable market. It's only interesting to geeks and libertarians and um, you know, people who want to do things in the gray market. And if you believe that uh, model for Bitcoin, you'd think that its price, uh, target price would be somewhere in the ballpark of 10,000, maybe on the higher end to 100,000, something like that. The addressable market is tech people essentially and libertarians. The third valuation model I have is that and that I've observed is that Bitcoin is digital gold. It's it's a monetary good and its closest cousin is gold. It's a non-sovereign store of value. It's a place to store value that's not controlled by any sovereign, by any nation state. And if you recognize it as superior to gold, the attributes it has as money are superior to gold's attributes. So for instance, it's much easier to transport Bitcoin and to transmit it over the wire. Then you look at gold's market capitalization, which is approximately 10 trillion, and you could easily slap a target price on Bitcoin of 500,000, which gets Bitcoin to that same capitalization. And if you believe it's superior to gold, as I do, I think it's uh, 10X or 100X superior to gold, I think you could easily see valuation from 500,000 to maybe a couple million. And then the final valuation model, is uh, Bitcoin as a reserve currency, the global reserve cur currency. And it takes on the role that gold, gold had in the 19th century, where it's the final means of settlement for banks and nation states uh, to settle trade between each other and settle accounts between each other. Uh, and it, if you believe that valuation model, then I think you, you can go into the tens of millions per Bitcoin um, because it becomes the global means of savings and it's going to suck liquidity out of every major market. It's going to take liquidity out of government bonds. It's going to take it drastically out of gold. It's going to pull it out of real estate. So for instance, in, in Vancouver, Washington, which is where I near where I live, a lot of Chinese investors want to have some of their assets out of the country as a safe haven. What's a good safe haven? Vancouver. They can move to Canada and they can have some savings when they arrive. All of that's going to get blown away. Why would you have a house that stays empty in Vancouver when you can have it in Bitcoin? So if you believe that Bitcoin is going to become eventually the reserve currency of the world, as I do, 
then you, you you get very very high uh, target numbers for Bitcoin. So so VJ, I've been accused of being overly bullish. So let's let's stay on this point for a second, which is the idea that Bitcoin demonetizes other assets, right? Real estate, as you point out, art, as you're probably aware, most privately owned art sits in in just warehouses, right? Mostly in Switzerland for tax reasons. No one's looking at them. Most of it's bought anonymously. So people aren't even getting credit for owning the art, right? So it's clearly a store of value. And, and I could see the monetary premium getting slowly diminished out of those assets where let's say art appreciates, but the, the rate of appreciation goes from being double digits to mid, mid single digits, right? Where it's almost not noticeable this demonetization. But what I hear you talking about becomes disruptive to the monetary system globally, right? And it seems to me, I'm doing too much talking, that Bitcoin, at least in the United States, is in a great place from a regulatory standpoint, right? We have banks are allowed to do it, right? Anchorage has been designated the first digital bank. So we feel like we, I feel like we have this runway from now until that point, which we start becoming we, see, I'm using Bitcoin as we, a threat, but how, how do you think about that regulatory risk when you combine that with your end game? Yeah, I think that's an, another great question. I think is one of the biggest risks to Bitcoin that people should really think about when they're investing in Bitcoin. Uh, the way I think about it is how does Bitcoin or can Bitcoin get enough regulatory capture uh, before it's seen as a threat? And I think uh, some nation states are getting that first inkling that, hey, this might be a threat to our monetary policy if the world's savings start flowing into something that we can't inflate and something that we can't control. How do we control our own monetary policy? And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago where they said, well, maybe the biggest threat is that Bitcoin doesn't um, go up, but that it keeps going up and it keeps going up. And then, hey, we as central bankers thinking about monetary policy, we've lost control. And the way I think about this is kind of the same way I think about Uber as a company. Uber is a company that would go into markets where the, the local government and the established players were very antagonistic to Uber. And, you know, the taxi lobby would lobby the local city government and say, look, we don't want Uber to come in and completely disrupt our business. Uh, and they were very cozy with local governments. So local governments were typically very antagonistic to Uber. And what Uber would do is just barge into this city and say, okay, we're providing this app here. We're hiring a bunch of drivers. Users really love it. They start using it. And you get this entrenched lobby, which starts saying, hey, you can't attack this company. This benefits us. We want this here. And I think the same thing is true of Bitcoin. We're starting to see some of that capture where, Imagine you're a congressman and four years from now, 20% of your constituency owns Bitcoin and you start saying, well, maybe we should regulate this thing or ban it. Well, you're going to get a lot of pushback. Uh, so I think in the Western democracies, the question is whether we get to that point of regulatory capture before uh, nation states begin to crack down. And I see really, really positive signs in that regard. We have a senator who's a, a uh, very pro Bitcoin from Wyoming. Uh, I think we're going to see several more congressmen in the next election, and then one election hence from that a lot more, uh, because 
that we, we're really transitioning from Bitcoin being this niche thing to being very widespread and owned by a lot of people in the US. And when, when you have uh, a lot of people with their savings in something, that's a natural protection, a natural lobby. And throw in the fact that corporations are now getting into Bitcoin, large funds, these institutions have much more lobbying power than the average person. They don't want their balance sheet to be blown away by a government doing something stupid. Uh, it's kind of like it would be very difficult for a government to, to outlaw 401ks right now. You, you just can't do that. So the, the big question to me is, do we make that transition quickly enough? I am optimistic. No, I think that's right. I, I think that the, the, the mass adoption, right, is, is the best defense against political actors. I do have to say in the short term, I have a little history in politics. I was actually deputy mayor of Los Angeles. I worry about Bitcoin not being embraced by the progressive movement. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's viewed as being sort of a, a right wing libertarian thing. And I, I think that's I think as a community, that's an important bridge for us to build soon. As you, you're aware, there was some legislation that came out of the House that didn't go anywhere from the progressives in the House that, that was unhelpful to, to the idea of digital assets. So, you know, um, that's something that's just you know, on my radar screen. Can you talk about the, the, the recent ban in India? Because they seem like a nation and an economy and it, that should be embracing Bitcoin and instead they're going in the opposite way. Uh, you, know, you talked about large democracies. Uh, last I checked, that's the largest one, right? Yeah, you know, I, I have in Indian heritage. I grew up and was raised in Australia, but I have Indian parents. And one thing I can tell you about the Indian government is the Indian government does not trust its people. <laughs> That's the problem right there. Uh, the, the Indian government makes people go through all sorts of uh, hoops just to buy a cell phone. So the, 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 the lack of trust, I think, is the fundamental problem there. I think ultimately it's inevitable. India could ban Bitcoin and be the last in line, let make its population be the last in line to get Bitcoin. They're just harming their own people, in my opinion. It's saying, it's to me, it's like saying, we're going to ban the internet because we're worried people might talk about stuff that we don't like. Uh, okay, sure, you can do that, but you can live in the dark ages for another decade while the rest of the world advances. I think they will be, their hand will be forced when that happens. I don't know. Okay. Um, let's discuss volatility. Right. And um, it's my personal view that volatility is sort of wrongly characterized as a risk. I view it in Bitcoin as more of an opportunity because most of the volatility has been up. Um, As we talked today, Bitcoin has moved. It was 58 on Sunday. It got to 45 today after having a 25 percent pullback last month. this isn't made for everybody. How, how do you think about the volatility? Um, do, do you think it's going to change? Um, just like your reaction to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I just think that the criticism that Bitcoin has got that it's volatile is uh, really nonsensical. You can't go from something that was worth zero a decade ago to being a trillion dollars without volatility. It's just impossible. Uh, so, and I, I completely agree with what you're saying. It, it's really the other side of the coin of opportunity. Uh, th- there's so much upside to Bitcoin that you're going to see uh, a, 
sort of a bumpy ride for a while because what's happening is the volatility, especially the upward volatility, is a function of new savings moving into Bitcoin. When you have, especially in the early days, when you had um, people like the Winklevoss twins put in $10 million into Bitcoin when the price was, I don't know, $20 or $30, that's going to have a sharp effect on the price because the supply is strictly limited and more Bitcoin won't be produced due to the extra demand. So that's part of the reason for the volatility on the upside. And and that's really magnified now with the size of the institutions who are coming in. We're not not talking about $10 million coming in at a pop. Now we're talking about 1.5 billion coming in at a pop when an institution says, hey, yeah, let's get some of our treasury into Bitcoin. So I think that's part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation is that the concentration of Bitcoin being held by relatively few people, say a few tens of thousands, is still quite high. And that's really just part of the process of monetization. Those early owners who had a, a, you know large chunks of Bitcoin, they will diversify as their net worth gets into strat- stratospheric levels. Uh, and I sort of view it as like an iceberg with like a tide crashing against the iceberg. The price is going up, crashing against the iceberg. And eventually these ice sheets break off. And that's really just a long time holder saying, hey, you know, I've got 10,000 Bitcoin. I'm going to sell a thousand Bitcoin now to diversify and improve my standard of living. And that's like a chunk of the iceberg, the supply iceberg falling into the ocean, crashing into the ocean and causing some volatility. Uh, so I think this is just a natural part of the process of monetization. And I think it's going to uh, taper off meaningfully when, when Bitcoin gets to the market capitalization of gold. Uh, gold still has some volatility. Uh, in, in 2011 to 2014, it dropped almost 50%, but it's certainly less volatile than Bitcoin. The larger Bitcoin becomes, the less volatile I believe it will become because when when some savings moves into Bitcoin, it will be much smaller relative to the size of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So, you know, the volatility, it seems, has tracked these cycles, right? And the cycles, the bull cycles have tended to start with halvings, right? When the supply of Bitcoin is reduced in half every four years. Um, we really have two data points on this. And... I sort of wonder, I have tremendous respect for the Bitcoin community, you know, and all the hard work that's happened over the last decade. But I wonder if that history sometimes isn't a burden when you look forward. In other words, has something changed meaningfully with the events that we've discussed and the maturation, you know, of the asset class? Um, Have you reflected on that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, one thing I find most fascinating is that Uh, we have never seen a monetary good being monetized in real time. This is the first time in history that we get to watch it in real time. The process of the monetization of gold took millennia. It's thousands of years before gold transitioned from being a lump of rock in the ground to being used in coinage and then backing um, paper notes and so forth. So we get to see how this works. And, And one thing we're learning, just as you mentioned, there are these hype cycles And it's absolutely fascinating to me that they have this pattern, this almost fractal-like pattern of increasing magnitude, where if you look at the 2017 bull market and you superimpose it on 
the 2013 bull market, it looks almost identical. Uh, and, and, and to, you know, someone with a sort of engineering or scientific mindset that cries out for an explanation, why is that? And my feeling is this is kind of part of the social dynamic of monetization, that it happens in these phases where you get some uh, cohort of people that are reachable in the cycle, that have enough understanding of, or have heard about Bitcoin enough to be interested in investing in it. And you start out with the, the, the really strongly convicted in the beginning, and then you get uh, people who are more long-term investors coming along and the price starts creeping up. And in the final uh, stage, you see speculators who just want to make some quick profits. And then you get this kind of crescendo and uh, parabolic move and eventually a, a climax and a, and a correction and a crash. And we see this over and over again. It's just the cohort of people that are reachable in each cycle grows. So the first cohort, who were they? They were cypherpunks and cryptographers and people who understood what Bitcoin was immediately. The next cycle was libertarians and uh, people who wanted to use Bitcoin in the gray market. And then the next cycle, 2017, was, was early adopters. But I think the same social dynamic applies in each of these cycles, regardless of who the cohort is. Now the cohort is corporations and institutions. And it could be this kind of the FOMO phase of the cycle is dampened a little bit because corporations are a little more logical than retail investors, but maybe not, maybe not. Maybe you'll see corporations and institutions have some of that FOMO too, if enough of them jump on board Bitcoin. So what happens when Google says, hey, yeah, we want some Bitcoin and Facebook does, do Amazon and Microsoft sit back and say, well, Okay, we're just going to not have any. Like, I think this could possibly apply to corporations as well. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but there's just some no, thoughts. It's, it's interesting. It's, I guess I, I bring a market perspective to it. And when it when a mm -hmm. trade seems too easy, it usually ends. So, right, the easy trade right now is, okay, I'm going to buy Bitcoin at every halving and I'm going to sell it somewhere between 14 and 18 months thereafter. And I'm just gonna keep doing that, right? Every couple of years, I'll put a trade on. I might even short it two years out. And whenever something looks that simple, it ends up blowing people up. And so I'm just imagining, and maybe it's not this cycle, a bunch of people selling, right? Anticipating that, okay, I got it. My time, the stock to flow, everything's telling me it's the peak. And then it just goes and it laughs at everybody. You know what I mean? Or mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you know, if I if I was to think that the model would blow up, I'd almost believe it would blow up in the other direction in that the crash doesn't happen and it just slowly, steadily continues to go up. Right. Uh, and the reason I think that is that the number of people who have become diehard Bitcoiners, regardless of price, these are people who are saying, I don't want to save in dollars. I just don't. And I'm not going to. So that is a constant flow of capital into Bitcoin. Um, so you look at someone like Russell Okung in the NFL, and he's he's really started a trend in the NFL. There's several players in the NFL now. I think that's also going to grow. Who say, I want my salary in Bitcoin. And so that financial energy is going to constantly move into Bitcoin. The question for me is, do we ever get to critical mass where we don't have these corrections and it just keeps going up because there's enough financial energy to keep pushing it up? So I think that's an open question. It, it might be the case that, uh, 
you know, it doesn't follow past trends, but really it's, it's it, at this point in time, it is eerily similar, yes. eerily similar to, to 2017. And if you were, if you were someone who, you know, was trying to make a prediction about the future, you would say, this is scary. What, what's happening? I, I was skeptical. I was honestly very skeptical that some of these models were true, uh, skeptical of stock to flow, but I'm kind of watching the price movement. And if anything, it's moving faster than the 2017 cycle, which shocks me. Uh, I thought at this scale, Bitcoin would have to slow down a little bit. And I think what I've learned is that although it's much bigger, the size of capital moving into Bitcoin is also commensurately much bigger as well. But I, but I guess there's, a, there's an offsetting challenge, right? Which is people talk about how on the supply side, right? So we're presently at a place where there's only 900 Bitcoin are mined daily, right? So at 50,000 a Bitcoin, right? That's $45 million, right? That has to be accumulated just to keep the price constant, right? At 500,000, Right now we're up to $450 million a day, right, of new buying that has to just come in. And, and, and I guess I wonder how that, you know, so, so the supply so the supply is some, it's not completely, you know, constant, right, in terms of. Yeah, that's a good point. The miners are marginal producers. So, you know, they have electricity costs that they need to pay off. So when they mine Bitcoin, they typically have to sell it very quickly to pay for their expenses. But you, you now have a new dynamic where companies are raising funds on public markets to pay to buy Bitcoin at very low interest rates, which is astounding to me. And I think I think there's one company, I've forgotten what it's called, which is a mining company doing this, where they're raising funds in the public markets so that they don't need to sell the Bitcoins that they mine, that they can continue to hold them. And so you, you could have this kind of double effect where not only are people buying, uh, but new supply isn't coming on the market. Not just the supply was reduced by the halving, but miners are say, holding back and saying, look, I don't want to sell for a while because I think this is going to go up. If their expectations change and they're able to pay their costs, their electricity bills, they might become longer term holders too. Then you get a real supply shortage. And then that's that's when things can go incredibly parabolic very quickly. So we got to talk about energy, right? Because I think there's been a, a, a there's been a bunch of nonsense out there. Tether was nonsense and today. You know, there was a settlement with the New York Attorney General, and so I think that issue, and you know, we'll use your time well and not not dive into that. But I, I think the concern about energy is going to be a real one and one that we're going to hear for a while. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I'd like your take on that, um, just generally. Yeah. Uh, so this that was one issue I didn't cover in my article. And as I discussed with you before we started, I'm turning my article into a book. And this is one of the issues that I'm going to be discussing in the book, because it is, like you say, it's a big issue. It's a big political issue. Uh, it's an issue where, you know, certainly one side of the political spectrum is very concerned about it. And if that makes them antagonistic towards Bitcoin, that is a cause for concern as an investor in Bitcoin. What I would say is that uh, firstly, you need to compare Bitcoin, uh, if it becomes global money, to the energy footprint of its uh, competitors. And you, you need to look at gold, how much energy is, if, if, if Bitcoin completely disrupts gold, 
how much energy is going to be saved that way. Gold mining not only consumes a, a massive amount of energy, but it's very, very destructive to the environment, unlike Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining happens in data centers, and typically it happens in places which are using uh, green energy or, or areas where there's been a massive overbuild and there's overcapacity of energy. So I'll give you an example. Sichuan in China is a region where they had massively overbuilt and had built hydroelectric dams and there just weren't enough people there. So that energy was essentially being thrown away. It couldn't be used because energy is not fungible. You can't, I mean, unless in the form of a barrel of oil, energy that you create in Sichuan can't be transported to Texas. It just can't happen. So that energy gets thrown away. Uh, so Bitcoin is actually a great technology in a sense that it can rescue stranded energy. That's energy that's uh, in places where it's hard to transport or get out or to use in other forms. Uh, and really where you see Bitcoin mining happening is in places where they've overbuilt and they're like, how do we use this excess capacity? or where they may have volatility and demand. So in the United States, there's a, a city called Wenatchee, which is quite close to me, where you know a number of large companies like Facebook and Google have their data centers, but their usage is very bursty. Like they'll have you know, a lot of traffic at one point in the day, but maybe not in the other parts of the day. And that they, they have to uh, sign contracts for a certain amount of energy and say, we need this amount of energy, peak energy, in case our demand, uh, our servers need that much energy uh, at a particular point in time. And when their servers don't need that much energy, that energy is thrown away. So it's really great in places like that where Bitcoin miners can set up and say, look, we'll take all of the excess energy that you're not using at any point in time and we'll pay for it. It, it is great for these energy providers to be able to sell to Bitcoin miners. It really uh, sort of flattens their demand. It's not so bursty. Um, so, so Bitcoin mining has, uh, I think, a positive effect on the energy market because it can unlock stranded energy and it can make uh, energy consumption much more reliable for energy providers when they're thinking about investing in building out things like dams. I just saw a report that I, I think it's miners' energy usage is like 40% renewables. It seems to me that once we we get that right over 50% in moving higher will probably be the best way to address this issue, right? Because, you know, who cares how much, you know, hydro or solar you're using? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And part of the problem is not just Bitcoin specific. It's just like a global issue of how do we move people onto sources of energy that don't, you know, destroy the environment. Uh, and uh, if, if it becomes the case that renewable energy is, cheaper than the alternatives, that's where Bitcoin mining is going to go. So I have one more question before I throw it to John, who I know is chomping at the bit, having, having read your, uh, your essay again last night. Um, at the MicroStrategy conference, uh, when Ross Stevens and, and Michael kicked it off, Ross talked about you know, Bitcoin, the network, and he specifically spoke about a company called Strike, and there's a company, I guess, called BottlePay in, in the UK that's doing somewhat substantially similar. I'll, I'll in, in, in a bad way, just sort of summarize my understanding of what they claim to be able to do. Again, coming from LA, the idea of remittances in that market is very, very much strikes home to me. But my understanding is that they'll be able 
to use the Bitcoin technology where they'll take a dollar, turn into Bitcoin, essentially zap it to Mexico, it'll then get converted to a Mexican peso at virtually no cost, you know, almost instantaneously. Um, what would that mean for Bitcoin? Can they actually do that? Um, uh, you know, it sounds like Jetsons kind of stuff, um, but it's super exciting if they can. Yeah, so this is all, all technology is built with the Lightning Network. And the Lightning Network is an, it's like a financial layer built on top of the Bitcoin network. The Bitcoin network is the base layer. It's the settlement network. And what it's really for, what its purpose is for large-scale settlement. Now, people were a bit confused about this in the early days because there weren't many users of Bitcoin and it looked like transaction fees on the base network were very low and it could be like a payment network or a credit card network. But uh, it's become very clear that that's not what Bitcoin is for. It's for settlement. It's it's the equivalent that gold took to gold in the 19th century. It's a means of settling between large institutions. We'll see that more and more over time, but it's still unclear to someone. Um, the, the payment stuff is going to happen on the higher level, which is the Lightning Network, which allows people to transact without the cost of transacting on the blockchain, which is becoming more and more expensive. So you can send payments uh, between people near instantly at almost zero cost on the Lightning Network. It doesn't have quite the sort of trust assurances that you get on the blockchain, but for small payments, that doesn't matter. You don't need the same kind of level of assurance that your payment has settled uh, when you're buying a coffee, right? You don't you don't need that, that you might need if you're a bank settling with another bank and trying to settle a billion dollars. So what you're saying is certainly possible and people are working on it. I think there's great potential in this, uh, certainly great potential for the remittance market. It's possible. Um, the Lightning Network is is still fairly new, and um, uh, it's not. I would say it's not in its complete final form. Um, it's it's technically uh, it still has some holes in it. Um, so I think that's there's a lot of people working on it. And it's going to be developed, and we're going to see this kind of thing in the future. So I'm optimistic about what you were saying. And I imagine it's it's good for Bitcoin, both in terms of, of its utility, but also again social proof, right? Just in terms of everyone being aware of, you know, what Bitcoin can do for the greater good, and therefore, you know, why you should be more comfortable investing in it. Absolutely, and it also allows people to own much smaller quantities of Bitcoin and be able to transfer them economically. If you only own five or six dollars of Bitcoin, it's not really very economical to be able to transfer that on the blockchain because the fees are in the order of, you know, a couple of dollars sometimes. And uh, I mean, that's incredibly cheap if you're, if you're settling for uh, settling an account for 10 million or a hundred million dollars, that's a bargain, especially because you can do it with very high level of assurance very quickly. Uh, but for people who want to make small transfers, it's just not economic. Uh, so the lightning network is going to make these much smaller micropayments economic for, you know, the mass of people in countries like India and Africa and, and places like that. That's great. All right, John, you can have Adam. All right. Finally got my my shot at glory here, VJ. Um, you know, again, <laughs> I, I just want to compliment your piece, uh, the bullish case for Bitcoin. If anybody watching this hasn't read it, it's sort of a foundational piece in terms of understanding intellectually why Bitcoin could be valuable. You know, it's you go through the same conversation journey with everybody when they get introduced to Bitcoin. Well, 
this is just funny money. It's it's made out of thin air. You know, what, why would it be worth anything when it's just this computer program? And I try to explain my parents have gone through this. My brothers have gone through this who aren't in the business uh, intellectually about why it has value. And I think talking about the game theoretic nature of monetary goods and the Nash equilibrium uh, within your paper, could you just explain that going back to the fundamentals a little bit about, you know, why would Bitcoin just this invention that was created 12 years ago by a pseudonymous uh, inventor named Satoshi Nakamoto, why would it have value going back to the history of money? Yeah, so money is a, a very confusing subject for a lot of people because money is not valued in the same way that regular goods like uh, stocks or real estate are valued. And these goods are valued through cash flow, discounted cash flow analysis. How much, how many, you know, how much dividends is a stock paying, or how much rent are you getting from a, a piece of real estate? And you sort of discount that future cash flow into the present, discounted by the interest rate. Uh, and it's not valued like uh, goods like oil or wheat, which are used in production of higher order goods like bread or uh, oil is used for all sorts of things. Money is uh, valuable because everyone else believes it's valuable. And it's something that's called an intersubjective reality, which is it only gets valued because other people value it. Um, and if we stop believing it has value, then it loses its value. So uh, there's this, this kind of game going on at all times where people are trying to figure out which uh, monetary good should I keep my savings in? Because there are a number of monetary goods out there. There's fiat, there's gold, there's now Bitcoin. And you're in this constant kind of game where people are deciding, should I keep my savings in this one or should I keep my savings in this one? And that's the game theoretic part. You're, you're trying to standardize on, on a money because when a society standardizes on a single money, that's tremendously valuable to all of society because money acts as the foundation for all trade and savings. Uh, so, so the game theory is really uh, people trying to anticipate what other people are going to do. Uh, so when you're making a bet on Bitcoin, you're really thinking, are other people also going to make that same bet? And you're doing that really based on the attributes that make Bitcoin good as money. And you say, well, I recognize these attributes are good. And I think other people are going to uh, recognize these attributes are good in the future. Um, so you, you jump in first in the hope that other people will, will jump in uh, later on. Right. And what are those attributes? Just very quickly that make Bitcoin such effective money relative to something like gold or fiat? Yeah, so we've known about the attributes that make for good money since the time of Aristotle. So for thousands of years, is durability. So wheat is not a good money because it, you know, it decays over time. Portability, so cows are not a good money. They're hard to transport. Uh, divisibility, so can it be broken into smaller pieces to facilitate trade? Um, Fungibility is another one. So gold is better as money than diamonds because diamonds are irregular in shape and quality, whereas gold, uh, one piece of gold is equivalent to another piece of gold. And another one is established history that the, the longer people have used something as money, the more that, uh, that people will trust that it's going to be valuable as money into the future. Uh, and I think probably the most important attribute of all for anything to be money is scarcity. You don't want to store your wealth in something that can be produ produced very easily. 
uh, or that's super abundant like sand. Uh, so Bitcoin is superior to gold and fiat along all of the attributes that make for good money, except maybe established history. Gold has gold is the king of established history, but uh, in my in my mind, the that advantage or that attribute is quickly diminishing for gold relative to Bitcoin because I think uh, as people uh, recognize Bitcoin is still around and is still working uh, after. A few decades, they'll they'll view it as a permanent institution of the world, in the same way that people view the internet as a permanent institution of the world. And so that that advantage of established history, I think, is going to be mostly gone in the next decade. Um, the other comment I just quickly want to make is that I think fiat money is is good for transporting value through space because. It can be digital and you can transmit value to another person digitally using PayPal or Venmo. Gold is good for transporting value through time. And that's because gold can't be inflated and can't be debased by governments. Bitcoin is good at both. It's good at transporting value through space and time. And so I think it's superior to both gold and fiat money. I want to dive into risks a little bit, um, and you you devote time in your paper to this and, and in your subsequent writings about what are the legitimate risks to Bitcoin versus some of the fallacious criticisms that it draws from people who are either aren't invested and, and maybe have some FOMO and FUD uh, in terms of missing out on the upside. But what, in your view, are the real legitimate long-term potential risks to Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, so I think in the early days, probably the biggest risk was protocol risk. Was the cryptography that Satoshi built Bitcoin on sound? Was the protocol he built sound? And and really, that was a test, an experiment that had to be done over many years. And if you go back and look at some of the early emails, the, the cryptographers who were first presented his white paper were very skeptical. They'd been trying to work on decentralized money for over a decade. And he, along comes this person that no one had heard about and said, I've solved this problem. Uh, but it just over the years after, you know, thousands and thousands of very smart people have been trying to break Bitcoin to hack it, to, to find some flaw in it. Um, we've come to understand that Bitcoin's protocol is rock solid. It, in terms of real risks now, I think, and uh, you know, speaking, we were speaking with Brett about this. Um, Nation-state attack to me is the the last credible risk to Bitcoin. Uh, are we going to see nation states wake up to the potential threat that Bitcoin poses to their monetary policy, and what are they going to do about it? Uh, and and as we discussed, I think that's really a question of whether Bitcoin gets enough political capture, gets enough adoption that it becomes infeasible for nation states to attack Bitcoin and they have to come to terms with it and say, well, this is a fait accompli. Uh, Bitcoin has now become a global store of value. What do we do? Do we add it to our reserves? Um, do, we, do we incorporate it in our monetary policy? Uh, so that's an open question for me. And I think it's a question that we're going to we're going to see um, answered over the next five to six years because Bitcoin, the amount of savings that are going to flow into Bitcoin over the next five years is going to be uh, stupendous. I think Bitcoin's going to overtake gold. It's going to overtake gold. And I think it's going to have uh, this geopolitical significance, which will make nation states sort of sit up and pay attention. Right. I want to talk to you about Satoshi uh, 
for a moment. Satoshi Nakamoto, again, is the, the synonymous creator of Bitcoin. Satoshi, to my knowledge, has never sold any Bitcoin that's attributed to him, whether it's a him or her or a group of people. But, you know, conceivably, Satoshi is the wealthiest person on the planet if it's an individual that's walking among us. What risk in your eyes do you see to Satoshi at some point in the future ripping off the mask and saying, you know, what you were talking about earlier is that you're basically buying Bitcoin with the expectation there's going to be greater adoption in the future. And it's really a game theoretical sort of money. What is the risk that Satoshi was just running some type of scheme uh, to enrich themselves and make themselves the wealthiest person on the planet? And they flood the market with the Bitcoin that is attributed to him, her or that group. All right, John, I want a shot at this one. After. All right, you take it first. Brent. VJ goes, and I want VJ goes first. He, <laughs> he, right. he may say what I'm going to say, so then I, I want uh, to... I, I'd love to hear what you have to say, Brett. Um, so I'll give a, a quick answer. I think it's a tail risk. I think it's a very low probability event. Uh, even if Satoshi were to sort of reveal him or herself and say, look, I'm, I'm about to dump my Bitcoin on the market. It's a one-time thing and it's a part of the process of monetization and the distribution of his coins. It's kind of like discovering gold in the new world. That that caused inflation in Europe. That was a one-time event, uh, but it, does, it didn't mean that gold suddenly disappeared from use as money. It just, there was a period of inflation. Uh, I think the same thing would be true for Satoshi. I think it's extremely unlikely uh, he has had or she has had the financial incentive for a long time. I mean, billions and billions of dollars. Any That would change the lifestyle of any person, yet not a single one of those coins has moved. The other reason I think that Satoshi will never re uh, reveal themselves is this great sort of physical risk to be known as the person who holds the most Bitcoin. You would need like a huge staff of armed guards uh, because Bitcoin has this property that transactions are not reversible. So if someone finds you and, and if you haven't really done a good job of your security, they can do what's called a $5 wrench attack where they say, give me all your Bitcoin or, or I'll take your fingers. <laughs> and if you have a million Bitcoin, it's a scary proposition. Um, this is why, honestly, a lot of large Bitcoin holders have custodied their Bitcoin with institutions rather than holding it themselves just for that fear. Right. So, Brett, I'd love to hear your answer. Yeah, same basic thing. I, 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 think, I think the Bitcoin were destroyed um, you know, when they were valueless and it was launched. Just what I know about human nature, I don't know any human being who could have the discipline to not touch it, setting aside, you know, buying a house or an airplane or a sports team. But th this was, a, this was a, a noble mission. They could be solving poverty, solving the pandemic, and they're sitting all this money not doing anything when they could help so many people. It, 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 it's inconceivable to me that this Bitcoin is accessible by a human being. I mean, anything's possible, but... As you said, I, I I would put very very low odds on it. Yeah, Last and can question. I can I, can, can yeah, I just ahead, quickly add to that point that Brett made? I think it was created as a noble a noble uh, pursuit because unlike a lot of these other cryptocurrencies, Satoshi announced it before he launched the network. He said anyone can mine it. Uh, in the early years, he only mined it to kind of keep the network going because there's only one or two computers on the network. Uh, 
a lot of these new cryptocurrencies are what's called pre-mined, like the people who create them will take a big chunk of the supply just to enrich themselves. It's very clear that that is not what has happened with Bitcoin. This is something that was created to benefit mankind. And I agree with Brett. I think that the highest likelihood is that those the keys to those coins were destroyed or perhaps Satoshi's dead. He's not alive anymore. So um I think there's it's an extreme tail risk that those those coins come back online. How many coins do you think are missing? Let's assume the Satoshis are gone. So when we say 21 million, what's the real number of of, of the, the float, if you will, once we get them all mined? Yeah, the best estimate I've seen is somewhere between three and five million are missing. It's a lot, right? So that you know you're right, you're turning 21 into 16 to 18. Yeah, and of those 16 to 18, um, you, you can have, the great thing about Bitcoin is the blockchain is open and transparent. And you can do all sorts of analysis on the flow of funds on the, the blockchain, and you can look at uh, Bitcoins that have stayed dormant for a long, long time. And it actually gives you a sense of where the market's going. Like you can tell that you might be getting to a crescendo top when coins from three to five years ago start moving and people who've had Bitcoin for that long say, ah, it's time for me to cash out. You can look at that and see that on the blockchain. Uh, and what you'll see is that actually the, the, the set of coins that are trading on the market at any, any particular time is very, very small fraction of the total supply. Most people uh, who are into Bitcoin are, are in it for the long term. So you don't see much movement of the total supply. Thank well, you. you know what? I'm going to save the rest of my questions and demand that VJ comes back for a, a second episode. We've had <laughs> multiple episodes with the great Michael Saylor, uh, given there was so much to talk to him about related to his decision of MicroStrategy to uh, invest what is now four plus billion dollars into Bitcoin. Uh, so we're very thankful for your time, VJ. Thank you for joining us. And and uh, we hope to have you back and we'll dive even deeper. Maybe after your book comes out, uh, we'll We'll distribute the book to our SALT community and have you back on to dive even deeper into some of the themes that you cover there. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks, John. And thanks, Brett. It was really, it was a pleasure for me to speak to you guys. And I'm, like I said, I'm really excited that you guys are getting into Bitcoin and, and spreading the word and, and, and doing what you're doing with your fund. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us, VJ. This is great. Thanks, guys. And thank you, everyone who tuned in to today's SALT Talk with VJ Boyapati, the offer uh, of the bullish case for Bitcoin, which again is one of the seminal writings uh, in Bitcoin in terms of understanding intellectually uh, why Bitcoin has value and the uh, price cycles that it's currently undergoing over the last several years. Uh, just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, you can access our entire archive of SALT Talks at salt.org backslash talks. You can access them all on our YouTube channel as well, which is called Salt Tube. Those are all free uh, to access for everyone. Uh, we're also on social media. Please follow us there. We're most active on Twitter at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. Again, the digital asset space is an area that we've been doing research on for several years, uh, and we're excited to sort of bring the leading voices in that space to you via our Salt Talk series. So definitely, if you're interested in learning more, go to our YouTube channel and watch all episodes of our digital asset series, including the aforementioned episodes uh, with Michael Saylor. Uh, which were both tremendous conversations about his decision at MicroStrategy to invest their corporate treasury assets into Bitcoin. Uh, but on behalf of Brett and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We so hope to see you back here soon.